Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. My name is Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for June 3rd, 2021. We're broadcasting this week from the Sequential Art Department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House, overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. We'll be talking about the golden age of comic books, Stan Lee and Marvel Comics, and much more in just a moment. We'll also take a look at what's new on the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf this week. But before we get to that, let's begin with a look at the ever-popular This Week in History. On June 3, 1962, 59 years ago, 113 Georgians died at Orly Airport in Paris when Air France Flight 7 crashed on takeoff. A total of 130 people died, including 103 members of the Atlanta Art Association. It was the worst single airplane crash at that time. Only the mid-air collision of two planes over New York in 1960 had taken more lives. The city's leading art patrons were coming home after a month-long tour of some of Europe's best art galleries, including the Louvre in Paris. Atlanta Mayor Ivan Allen Jr. saw the group off in early May and then flew to Paris to help identify the victims and to bring their bodies back home. He attended the memorial service at the American Cathedral in Paris two days later. The Robert W. Woodruff Memorial Arts Center, originally called the Memorial Arts Center, was founded in 1968 in memory of those who died in that crash 59 years ago. On June 4, 1738, 283 years ago, George William Frederick, who would become George III, was born at Norfolk House in St. James Square in London. He was the first child of Frederick, the Prince of Wales, and his wife, Princess Augusta. His grandfather, of course, was George II. His father died in 1751 at age 44, clearing the way for George to become king when his grandfather died in 1760. George III was 22 years old and would reign for nearly 60 years, longer than any of his predecessors. His reign was marked by the expansion of the British Empire with the defeat of the French in America in the Seven Years' War, the loss of the American colonies during the American Revolution, and the defeat of Napoleonic France after 20 years of war at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. He was the father of 15 children, nine sons and six daughters, and famously suffered from mental illness. In 1762, George purchased Buckingham House on the site now occupied by Buckingham Palace as a family retreat. His main residence was St. James Palace, the most senior royal palace in the UK, built by Henry VIII in the 1530s. George III never traveled beyond southern England, and he died on January 29, 1820, at the age of 81. He is buried in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, where Prince Philip was recently buried. Queen Elizabeth II, the current monarch, is his great-great-great-granddaughter. George III was a noted bibliophile and amassed a library of 65,000 volumes. The library was given to the British nation by his son, King George IV. It was housed in a specially built gallery in the British Museum for 170 years, from 1827 to 1997, and is now housed in the British Library in the King's Library Tower, a six-story glass and bronze structure in the British Library's entrance hall. And in case you're wondering, items from the collection remain available for reading by the public. 
On June 5th, 1981, 40 years ago, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, published a report describing a rare lung infection in five homosexual men in Los Angeles. This was the first report of what became known as Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, a transmissible disease of the immune system caused by the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. The CDC published its first report using the term AIDS in 1982. Details of the origin of HIV remain unclear. However, a lentivirus that is uh, genetically similar to HIV has been found in chimpanzees and gorillas in western equatorial Africa. That virus is known as simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV, and it was once widely thought to be harmless in chimpanzees. However, In 2009, a team of researchers investigating chimpanzee populations in Africa found that SIV, in fact, causes AIDS-like illness in the animals. The practice of hunting, butchering, and eating the meat of chimpanzees may have allowed transmission of the virus to humans probably in the late 19th or early 20th century. Genetic studies of a pandemic strain of HIV have indicated that the virus emerged between 1884 and 1924 in Central and Western Africa. Researchers estimate that the strain of the virus began spreading, uh, that that strain of the virus began spreading throughout those areas in the late 1950s. Later in the mid-60s, an evolved strain spread from Africa to Haiti. Sometime between 1969 and 1972, the virus migrated from Haiti to the United States. The virus spread within the U.S. for about a decade before it was discovered in the early 1980s. Since 1981, About 35 million people have died from HIV infection. On June 6, 1968, 53 years ago, Robert Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles while campaigning for the Democratic Party's nomination for president in the 1968 campaign. RFK was 42 years old and was buried near his brother John at Arlington National Cemetery. He and his wife Ethel, who is now 93, had 11 children. On June 7, 1776, 245 years ago, in the Second Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia introduced a resolution for independence, seconded by John Adams. Lee's resolution declared, quote, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all protection political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, unquote. Congress agreed to delay the vote on the Lee Resolution until July 1st. In the intervening period, Congress appointed a committee to draft a formal Declaration of Independence. Its members included John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. Jefferson was, of course, selected to be the primary author of the document, which was presented to Congress for review on June 28th. On July 1st, Congress resumed debate on the Lee Resolution with a majority of the delegates favoring the resolution. But Congress wanted the vote for independence to be unanimous by state. To ensure this, they delayed the final vote a day until July 2nd, when 12 colonial delegations voted in favor of it, with the New York delegates abstaining, unsure of how their constituents wanted them to vote. The Declaration of Independence was adopted two days later. On June 8, 
1924, 97 years ago, George Mallory, the English mountaineer who took part in the first three British expeditions to Mount Everest in the early 1920s, disappeared with his climbing partner Andrew Sandy Irvine on the northeast slope of Everest. His disappearance on that mountain in 1924 became one of the most celebrated mysteries of the 20th century. Mallory had been a longtime member of Britain's prestigious Alpine Club. When the club began assembling members for the first major expedition to Mount Everest, Mallory was a natural choice. The 1921 Everest expedition was mainly for reconnaissance, and the team had to first locate Everest before it could trek to and then around the mountain's base. Mallory helped map out a likely route to the summit of Everest from the northern, that is, Tibetan side. In September, the party attempted to climb the mountain, but high winds turned them back. Mallory was also part of the second expedition in 1922, which featured the major innovation of using supplemental, that is, bottled oxygen, on some of the ascents. Mallory and his team climbed without supplemental oxygen and reached a height of 27,300 feet, but could go no farther. In 1924, Mallory was selected for the third expedition, and before he left, he was asked why anyone would want to climb Mount Everest, to which he gave the famous reply, because it's there. The expedition had a difficult time with high winds and deep snows. On June 6th, he and a younger and less experienced climber, Andrew Irvine, set off for an attempt on the summit. The two started out from their last camp at 26,800 feet on the morning of June 8th. Another member of the expedition claimed to have caught a glimpse of the men climbing about 800 vertical feet from the summit in the early afternoon when the mist briefly cleared. Mallory and Irvine were never seen again. The mystery of their fateful climb has been debated since that day, especially whether they had reached the summit nearly 30 years before Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953. In the 1930s, Irvine's ice axe was found at about 27,700 feet, and in 1975, a Chinese climber discovered a body that he described as being that of an Englishman. In addition, an oxygen canister from the 1920s was found in 1991. With these clues, an expedition set out in 1999 to search for Mallory and Irvine. On May 1, 1999, 75 years after he had last been seen, George Mallory's body was found on Everest at 26,760 feet, and it was determined that he had died after a bad fall. His altimeter, pocket knife, snow goggles, and letters were found, but not the camera that he had had with him that might have revealed if he and Irvine had made it to the top. His body, well-preserved, sun-bleached, frozen, and mummified, was buried under a large cairn where it had been discovered. To this day, neither the camera nor the body of Sandy Irvine has ever been found. Finally, on June 9, 1870, 151 years ago, Charles Dickens died at the age of 58. The man widely considered to be a literary genius, one of the greatest novelists of the Victorian period and of any period, the author of the Pickwick Papers, David Copperfield, A Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, and many others, was working on the unfinished novel The Mystery of Edwin Drood when he died following a stroke. He wanted to be buried in Rochester Cathedral with little fanfare, but instead was buried in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, resting today near Geoffrey Chaucer, Samuel Johnson, Rudyard Kipling, Laurence Olivier, and Alfred Lord Tennyson. And that's This Week in History. 
one death of note to tell you about this week that you probably missed. Longtime Off the Deaton Path readers, listeners, and watchers know that I love baseball. Rennie Stennett, a key member of both Pittsburgh Pirates teams that won the World Series in 1971 and 1979, died on May 18th of this year. The native of Panama was part of a lineup that included Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Dave Parker, Manny Sanguian, and Al Oliver. Stennett made history a couple of times in his career. On September 1, 1971, in a game against the Philadelphia Phillies, Stennett was the leadoff hitter for baseball's first all-black and Latino starting lineup. What he's most remembered for happened on September 16, 1975, in a game against the Chicago Cubs. Rennie Stennett tied a major league record that day by getting seven hits in seven at-bats in a nine-inning game as the Pirates batted around in two different innings on their way to a 22-0 win over the Cubs. Stennett is one of only two players to ever get seven hits in a game, tying the record set by Wilbur Robertson of the Baltimore Orioles in 1892. Rennie Stennett played nine seasons with the Pirates, winning five divisional titles in addition to two World Series. He retired for good in 1989. Rennie Stennett was 72 years old. And now on to three additions, three new additions, to the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf. As you know, there's an ongoing national discussion about race and racism in American history. Kate Masur, M-A-S-U-R, a professor of history at Northwestern University, has a new book out entitled Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from the Revolution to Reconstruction, published in March by W.W. Norton. Now, as the subtitle implies, her thesis is that during the half-century before the Civil War, many of the free states passed laws that discouraged free African Americans from settling within their boundaries and restricted their rights to testify in court, to move freely from place to place, to work, to vote, and to attend public school. But over time, African-American activists and their white allies, often facing mob violence, courageously built a movement to fight these laws. Their ideas increasingly became mainstream by the 1850s and became part of the plank of the new Republican Party. It's an important book about a period not often identified as being important in the struggle for civil and human rights. Check it out. Next up is a new book by Jonathan Levy, a professor of history at the University of Chicago, entitled Ages of American Capitalism, A History of the United States, published in April by Random House. Levy traces the history of capitalism from the colonial era through the present in this big book. Uh, He argues that from the beginning of U.S. history to the present, capitalism in America has evolved through four distinct ages— and that the country's economic evolution is inseparable from the nature of American life itself. Very briefly, these four ages are, first, the age of commerce, spanning the colonial era through the outbreak of the Civil War, a period in which economic growth and output largely depended on enslaved labor and was limited by what could be drawn from the land and where it could be traded. Second, the age of capital following the Civil War, focusing on the Industrial Revolution, when investments in the new industrial economy led to great volatility, most dramatically with the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. The Depression immediately sparked the Third Age that he calls the Age of Control, when the government took on a more active role in the economy, first trying to jumpstart it and then funding military production during World War II. 
Skepticism of government intervention in the Cold War combined with recession and stagflation in the 1970s led to a crisis of industrial capitalism and the withdrawal of the political will for regulation of the economy. The current stage, the age of chaos, as he calls it, followed. A combination of deregulation and the growth of the finance industry that created a booming economy for some, but also striking inequalities for others, and a lack of oversight that led directly to the crash of 2008. This is an innovative, new, single-volume history of the United States. Again, it's called Ages of American Capitalism, A History of the United States by Jonathan Levy, published by Random House. Finally, going back in time and outside the range of American history, but just because it's fun, is a new book by Tony, or excuse me, Toby Wilkinson, who is an Egyptologist. He is also Deputy Vice Chancellor at the University of Lincoln in England. His book is entitled A World Beneath the Sands, The Golden Age of Egyptology, published last October by W.W. Norton. As contemporary museums and cultural institutions struggle with what to do with artifacts in their collections that were often taken from other countries, often against their will, this book focuses on the years when the West began seriously digging, literally, into Egypt's past. From the age of Napoleon, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, up to the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1923. And not to romanticize the period, but he covers all the would-be Indiana Joneses who went to Egypt during this period and came back, or tried to come back, with some valuable and fascinating part of Egypt's cultural history and what Egypt has been doing about it since. It's getting great reviews. Check it out. It's called, again, A World Beneath the Sands, The Golden Age of Egyptology, a new book by Toby Wilkinson, published by W.W. W. Norton. And that's this week's look at what's new on Off the Deaton Path Bookshelf. I hope you're reading something good, too. to the main part of our podcast this week. I subscribe to a magazine called Fine Books and Collections, and even though I don't collect fine books, uh, I enjoy reading about them and other collectors, and they send out an email newsletter about twice a month, usually with information and news about rare book finds or things that are coming up soon for auction. Now, a couple of weeks ago, an item jumped out at me that didn't have anything to do with books. It was a notice and a story about a recently discovered collection of Golden Age comic books that was coming up for auction called the Promise Collection. Yes, P-R-O-M-I-S-E, the Promise Collection. Now, for those of you not familiar with the history of comic books, the Golden Age is the period generally from the beginning of modern comics in the late 1930s, particularly superhero comics, beginning with the publication of Action Comics No. 1 in June 1938 that featured the, the uh, debut of Superman through 1956 and the beginning of the Silver Age, which is usually marked with the publication of Showcase No. 4 in October 1956, featuring the debut of the new Flash through about 1970. 
The Silver Age is, is primarily known, of course, for the rise of Marvel Comics with the publication of Fantastic Four, number one in November 1961, written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, the first of the Marvel staple of characters that included Spider-Man, the Hulk, the Avengers, the X-Men, Thor, Iron Man, and, of course, hundreds of others. The Golden Age saw the debut of not only Superman, but also, famously, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Captain Marvel, also, of course, known as Shazam, because that's what he said, even though his name was Captain Marvel, Captain America, the Submariner, or, as some preferred to call him, including me when I first heard of him, the Submariner, and many, many others. Now, the popularity of these characters was enormous, and comics publishing became a very important and lucrative part of the publishing business. Comics from this period, that is the Golden Age, are highly valued by collectors, particularly if they're in good shape, and especially if they have been graded by the Certified Guarantee Company, or CGC, as they're known in the business. The CGC is a third-party grading service that specializes in comics, trading cards like baseball cards, magazines, concert posters, etc., all kinds of things. They're graded on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest grade, also, of course, the rarest and the most valuable. So here's the story of this collection that I read about that's coming up for auction. In the early 1950s, a young man named Robert was drafted by the Army to fight in Korea. His younger brother, known as Junie, enlisted in the hopes of keeping watch over Robert. Junie had one request of his big brother, that Robert take care of his collection of comic books should anything happen to him in battle. Now, Junie had been a collector since he was a little boy, not because of the value, but because of the stories. Throughout the 1940s, incredible decade for the Golden Age, he amassed a collection of more than 5,000 Golden Age comic books, and he treated each of them with kid gloves. Now, that in itself is remarkable. He didn't fold them backward to read them. He didn't throw them under his bed. He didn't draw in them. Robert knew how dear these books were to his brother, so he promised him, yes, of course, he'd take care of these comic books if something happened, God forbid. Unfortunately, Junie was killed in action when he was 21 years old. When Robert returned home from war, he kept his promise. With great care and caution, he boxed up his brother's comic books and placed them in an attic for safe storage. And there they sat, undisturbed, for half a century. Now, in time, Robert and his family returned to those boxes to revisit what Junie had left behind. There they discovered what proved to be one of the world's greatest collections of Golden Age comics in extraordinary condition. The family went a step further in protecting them, bagging and boarding each one. That is, if you don't know, you put them in these little slim plastic bags with a little cardboard board. This keeps them protected from fingerprints, from hands, they cataloged them on an ever-growing spreadsheet that now reads like a collector's dream come true. The family that I'm talking about have asked to remain anonymous. But the CGC says that this collection, which they've only graded part of, has some of the highest graded titles they've ever seen. Some of these comics that were owned by Junie have been grading out at 98 which is almost unheard of for titles that stretch back almost 80 years. Now, that has to do with how white the pages are and how um, crisp the color is. 
is the spine bent. All kinds of things. But to grade out at 9.8 out of 10, unbelievable. As one collector was quoted as saying, they are of blistering high grade. It's a remarkable find, and serious collectors are eager to start bidding. Now, it ranks up there with the legendary Edgar Church collection, which was found by Chuck Rosansky in 1977, the owner of Mile High Comics in Denver, Colorado. A remarkable story. 15,000 comics from the Golden Age. This one is not as many, but because of the uh, condition, uh, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, honestly, it's the kind of collection that all readers of comics dream about. You always hope your neighbor will call you and say, Hey, I hear you like comics. I've got some up in the attic. You want to come see, look at them, and you dream of having found a collection like this. Now, I have to inject a little of my own history here in order to explain why this particular story caught my eye. Like many other people, I collected comic books growing up. Uh, mainly through about age nine, comics like Sad Sack, the, the, the GI, of course, during World War II, or the kind that featured talking animals, right? Walt Disney or something like that. That all changed in May 1974 as I was finishing up eighth, uh, fourth grade, um, still nine years old at that time. One afternoon, my mother drove over to a drugstore in nearby Lawrenceville, Georgia, in Gwinnett County. It was called The Prescription Shop. And I went with her, and they had an old-fashioned newsstand there that featured comic books. And, and when I say that, I mean there many comic books later were on racks. You still see them on racks that spin around um, when uh, drugstores carried such things. For whatever reason, these were on an old-fashioned newsstand. They were on shelves, uh, and they had comic books. One particular comic caught my eye. Had a splashy cover featuring, uh, as it turned out, I didn't know who these people were at the time, a fight between the Hulk, and the Fantastic Four member known as The Thing, Ben Grimm. This was a comic called Giant Size Superstars. Number one, published by Marvel Comics. I'd never heard of them. It was giant size not because it was larger than a standard comic, but because it was twice as thick. It had a longer story. It sold for 35 cents, and I talked my mother into buying it for me, and I took it home, and I read that comic book to tatters. Over and over. And from that moment on, I became a comic book superhero junkie. Now, that issue introduced me to the Fantastic Four and the Hulk, but more importantly, I think, to what might be called the Marvel Universe, right? To Stan Lee, who wrote something called Stan's Soapbox, where he talked directly to the readers and made it sound like so much fun. Everything that was going on at Marvel Comics, not only, of course, would you want to be part of, but that everything was just fascinating. He talked about all the people who were in the bullpen. You imagined an office where everybody was just having a wonderful time creating comics. I was introduced to Roy Thomas, Marvel's editor at that time, variously called. Now, you remember, Stan Lee had nicknames for everybody who worked at Marvel. Jack King Kirby, of course, was one of his uh, most famous collaborators. Uh, smiling Steve Ditko, who helped create Spider-Man. Roy Thomas was variously called Roy the Boy Thomas or Rascally Roy Thomas by Stan Lee. Um, all the writers, artists, inkers, letterers, editors at Marvel, they all had nicknames, and they were all listed on the splash page. They were given credits. Um, in addition to Stan's soapbox, there was a page called Bullpen Bulletins that had bulleted paragraphs that talked, and they always said, Item! Exclamation point. Full caps that talked excitedly about upcoming issues of Marvel's various titles. It was quite literally my introduction to what was known as the Mighty Marvel Universe, and it is not an exaggeration to say that it changed my life. I was already a voracious reader, 
Love the printed word. But Stan Lee and Marvel Comics opened up a whole new world for me. As all comics fans know, Marvel's heroes were different than the traditional heroes of the Golden Age that were mostly published by DC Comics. And not to knock them, I grew to love Batman and Superman and all the DC heroes. But you may remember, particularly early years, but Batman was a millionaire in real life. Superman was unbeatable, particularly the, the Silver Age Superman. They, they never had any personal problems of any note. Marvel heroes were different. They bickered with each other. They fought among themselves. They had trouble paying the rent. They had trouble holding down normal jobs. Uh, the most famous example of this, of course, is Peter Parker, the Spider-Man, who got bullied at school. He couldn't keep a girlfriend. He couldn't help his Aunt May pay bills. Uh, he got a job as a photographer working for J. Jonah Jameson. Stan Lee and his various collaborators, especially artist Jack King Kirby and Steve Ditko, are credited with making superheroes more human, with real human problems that everyone could relate to. They revolutionized the art of sequential storytelling. So this is what I got introduced to that day when I bought, or when my mother bought, Giant Size Superstars number one. So by the time I got into collecting... And that opened the door for me collecting other kinds of comic books. The Silver Age had given way to what was called the Bronze Age, um, which basically covered most of the 70s and part of the 80s. But my collection of comics eventually stretched back into the Silver Age. You could, at that time, of course, no internet, so going online and buying things was impossible, but you could um, send off to various people who advertised in the back of the comics for lists of back issues they had, I started going to some comics conventions that were held in Atlanta. It was there that I got Stan Lee to sign copies of books for me. First met Stan the Man. And I was able to put together a pretty good run of the Fantastic Four that I loved. Going all the way back to the May 1967 issue, which was number 62. And bringing it all the way through about 2008. 40 years complete of the Fantastic Four. I did the same with many other titles. Spider-Man, The Avengers, uh, you name it. They are now all boarded, bagged, boxed, and stored away in a safe but undisclosed location. Of course, nowadays, you can pay a monthly fee and read on your phone or other tablet devices the archival editions of almost all DC and Marvel titles stretching back to the Golden Age. I mean, literally back to the, to the first issue of Action Comics. All of it in glorious color white pages without fear of bending the pages or tearing the cover. It's really glorious if you're simply interested in reading these stories and seeing the evolution of these characters. The other thing that that first Marvel comic inspired me to do was create my own comics line. My company, and I use that in quotes, of course, was called Master Comics. Not Marvel, but Master and featured my hamster, who was named Motorfeet, so-called because of how fast he could run on his hamster wheel, of course. He was not in a cage in my comics. He was out fighting crime and doing all kinds of things. Motorfeet was my, my foundational character, but also Mighty Moose, Cannonball Man, dozens of others. Now, I should mention my good friend Lori New was the owner of her own company, Gordon Comics, and we spent, at, her foundational character was Powderpuff, we spent hours writing, drawing, and reading our own comics, developing our creative sides in ways that I think continue to pay off for both of us. Um, and make no mistake, I was no artist. <laughs> I couldn't draw. And to see these things now, they're laughable. But they were enormously fun to do. Uh, 
And I had a couple dozen titles that I produced every month for for several years for a very limited audience, obviously. And the real fun really was that I also had my own stands, soapbox, and bullpen bulletins. Now, there was no bullpen. There, I was everything. I was the writer, the artist, the inker, the letterer, you know, uh, the publisher. But all of this in writing, Stan Soapbox and the Bullpen Bulletins, required quite a bit of writing to describe what was upcoming and why my non-existent readers should read these comics that I was producing. Now, I thought my entire oeuvre of created comics, (laughs) if that's the word, had been lost in the mist of time, but I recently discovered them in my parents' basement in a box. And here's the thing. The art is still terrible. Um, the paper is fading, but the writing in places, I have to say, is pretty good. Now, I can go back and read essays that I wrote as an undergraduate in college, and I wince at reading them. But going back and reading Stan's Soapbox and reading those bullpen bulletins that I wrote when I was 10 years old, I have to say, they were pretty good, particularly for a 10-year-old. So, uh, they really, it's hard to overestimate, I think, how important those comics were to me and what I do in my life now. My, my father often said to me, um, and I'm not criticizing him here, this is a fact, he, would, he, would, he often said to me when he'd find me reading a comic, which was very often in those years, that if I spent only half the time studying my school books that I did reading comics, I'd be quite a student. And, and he was, no, oh, no doubt he was right about that. But actually, I'd like to think that those comic books helped me climb the scholastic ladder that eventually led to a Ph.D. Uh, I owe a lot to Stan Lee and Marvel Comics. Stan Lee died in November 2018 at the age of 95, and I think he inspired not just me, many others besides me, to be creative, to use your imagination, and to fall in love with language and words and storytelling. It was a very important thing in my life. So thank you, Stan Lee, and thank you, Marvel Comics. The hardest-working engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS juggling team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Crellin. Our GHS director of media manipulation and free elections is Patty Press Release Maher. The GHS Playground Director, Staff Archaeologist, and Fearless Food Taster is Elise Are You Gonna Eat That Butler. Our GHS Coordinator of Classroom Indoctrination is Lisa War Eagle Landers. The GHS Maven of Social Media and Library Science is Sabrina Human Search Engine Saturday. Our GHS Efficiency Expert and Controller of German Names is Karen Bodenschatz Zollner. The Director of the GHS Russian Literature Division is Christy Maple Crisp assisted by our writing intern, Warren Pease. Our off the Eaton Path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our GHS cabinet maker is L. Ron Cubbard. Our GHS director of ethics and honesty is U. Lion Sack. Our off the Eaton Path director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iopoka. Our staff elections coordinator is Emmanuel Recount. And our off the Eaton Path martini mixer is Olive Twist. If you have an iPhone, you can find our podcast at the App Store or on the podcast app on your phone and on Spotify. If you have an Android, look for us at Google Play. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. 
Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook and Instagram as well. Please also visit DeatonPath.GeorgiaHistory.com and check out Dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similarly blisteringly high-grade podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening.